Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Katie. I'm Katie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm someone. I getting older. I can't remember my name. Yeah, I'm getting older. <laughs> Shut up to mention friends of my family. Okay. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Kate. And I'm Katie. And this is Premeditated. And it's also Katie's Lost Her Voice Week. Yeah, Katie uh, went on a crazy wild trip and had a good time. Oomps, and oomps, oomps, yeah, oomps. <laughs> not really. It was a it was an 18 year old grad party and a 70 year old birthday. So it was not a <laughs> situation. <laughs> it was a ranch house yeah. situation. <laughs> um, so she barely has a voice. That's true. Because she went from 50 degree weather to 104 today. That's right. And also because I have a loud family and we tend to Oh, yell yeah. at each other over like large tables and so yeah. it's like we're yelling over each other and nobody in my family listens so, so that's that's also mine. so there is a lot of yelling but there's there's no understanding <laughs> so then you'll say something to someone later and it'll blow their mind but it was literally said like four times what do you mean adrian's pregnant adrian's pregnant <laughs> yes she this was discussed at length yeah, she's 15 years old. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know an Adrian, but there have been 15 year olds. Pregnant. So uh, moving on. Yeah, no, but I did have a good, great weekend with my family. But um, yeah, coming back to 100 plus degree weather is has been a shock on the system for sure. I'm jealous, though, because you got to go back to the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah uh, Seattle is pretty awesome. Serial killer capital of the we world. We talked about it several times. I talked. We talked about serial killers. My cousin is also like a true crime buff, so we talked about true crime many times. And her eighteen-year-old daughter Leanna is also really into it. So, yeah. So we talked about it, and then my other cousins into it. So we we did a lot of true crime talking. And I told you that I texted oh, yeah. you. One of my cousin's partners is from Lewiston, which is from. The episode Lewis that you Clark, did. Yeah, Lewis Clark Valley. About that serial killer. So I asked her, and I'm like, tell me, do you know about the serial killer? And she's like, she was like, yeah, I know. Lance Foss. Oh. Yeah, she's like, and apparently she was like, yeah. And they like, they know the guy who did it, but they can't pin him. I'm like, exactly. Yep. That's the one. So that was pretty exciting. Small town. Small and world. another awesome thing. Ooh. You got to share what, who you, you met people at a grad party. <gasps> I met, I went to a grad party this last weekend. Um, for uh, a niece and nephew twins of a good friend of mine. And um, I met my friend's cousin who uh, his fiance, they, they met at Menards. Of course they did. Well, I mean, were they buying gummy bears or pizza? No. Kelly, uh, he was working there. Okay. I don't know if his fiance was also working there or if she just came in. We didn't really get to talk about oh it. Oh my whole god, lot. need more details. But guys, obviously Menards is special. You can find love at Menards. We talked about it, and yeah. it's true. Clearly, yeah, yeah. Like, am I going to go to a bar? No. Where hopefully someone will roofie me, and I don't remember the next day. <laughs> Or am I going to go to Menards and have a meet cute over a bag of gummy bears? <laughs> or sesame be. sticks. Or sesame sticks. I would rather. Or bridge mix. I mean, any of any, the above. And pup mix. I mean, <laughs> I the the options are endless. I mean, I Sunday I went there and I got five bags of mulch, yeah. and I love how it's such a community because this guy 
He was helped like, you, I bet. No, he didn't. I helped him. Wow. Yeah. He was like, hey, is this mulch any good? And I was like, I don't know, but it looks good. And but I a just, beautiful community feel of Menards is where we're going. I guess. And just, so I just said, hey, you know, don't get the colored stuff because it fades. And, and he was like, thanks so much. And he, yes, he picked himself up three bags. He might've taken it back later, but I didn't see it. <laughs> and then when I was in the parking lot, I was throwing bags of mulch in the back of my cute new car. And this lady next to me just struck up a chat with me about, about my car. And like, you know, we talked about Ford for a little while and thanks Menards. Yes. Building relationships. Okay, we need to we'll create a new one like bag a new of mulch at a time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a new one liner for the store, but Super excited for Kate to get started today and to talk about South Dakota, the land of Black Hills and Mount Rushmore, the Badlands. This takes place in Mount Vernon, South Dakota. Okay. Which it's East Central South Dakota. The land is pretty flat, as you can imagine, and there's a lot of farmland around. So it's 12 miles west of the world's only corn palace. Oh, I've been there. Have you been to Mitchell? Oh, I've, I've been to the Corn Palace <laughs> a time or two. And 80 miles west of Sioux Falls, the state's largest city. As of 2020, it has a population of approximately 500. Wow. Yeah. What a place. Yeah, it looks pretty desolate on the map. Yes. Just kind of looking at it here. But yeah. But there is the Corn Palace there, which is pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty big deal. So I've seen pictures of the Corn Palace. I've never actually been there. It's just, it's like a building that is covered in corn, which is like. But I love that they call it a palace. You know, it's South Dakota. What happens when you set fire to it? Hey, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. Yeah, so Mount Vernon, South Dakota. Let's yeah, let's get on. Let's okay. get on into it. I thought you were saying, let's get it on. Let's get it on. Yeah, in your sexy Ow. radio voice. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, and I bet there's a lot of you out there that would agree with this. Your voice sounds really sexy. Does it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Down a couple of <laughs> My singing voice has been really heavily affected by this, which I is have- unfortunate. Then we're all going to suffer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's our loss. <laughs> So I've told you about the location in South Dakota. I first heard about this case because I'd never heard about it before because I started reading this book called Horror in the Heartland by Noel Hamill. All right, so let's get started. Yeah. Mount Vernon, South Dakota. So on September 8th, 1981, which is, as you know, a good year because it was the year I was born, <laughs> the year of my birth, um, Deputy Sheriff Doug Kirkus gets a call at 3.54 a.m., which the sheriff's number and his home number are listed as one. Huh. So I think that's pretty common because it was a town of 500. Sure. So the caller is a local farmer named John Mathis, and he seems to be very distraught. Kirkus continues to talk to him, and he's not believing what he's hearing. And then Mathis hangs up, and Kirkus, he gets dressed. He puts on his bulletproof vest. Oh, shit. So, you he's know, it's preparing for yeah, something serious. It's not some renegade sheep or something. <laughs> and he heads out the doors. So little did he know he'd be haunted by this specific night and its horrendous crimes nearly 40 years later. Okay. Driving at speeds approaching 100 miles an hour, 
As Kirkus neared the driveway of the farm, he glanced at his watch and it was 4.07. So he's made it there in like 13 minutes. Wow. Okay. He also noted headlights approaching from the east. So Kirkus scans the, the layout of the farm and he sees a house on the left and a large metal machine shed straight ahead. He shuts off the headlights of the patrol car, not knowing if the assailant is still on the property. So a pickup truck enters the yard and parks close to the machine shed where the Mathis family was living while their new home was being built. So they're living in this machine shed. And from pictures, it's basically just like a huge metal box. Yeah, machine shed? Yeah, so while their new home was being built. So I'll get to that later, uh, what happened to their home. But So this other truck drives up, and when the driver exits the truck, it's John Mathis's father, Vern. Okay. So Vern immediately asks Kirkus, like, what's going on? And Kirkus says, I know about as much as you do. Right. Like, so Vern got a call from his son, too, after Kirkus did. John Mathis like obviously something horrible has happened that he's just like calling everyone for help they both noticed that three words were written in gold paint on the shed's large sliding door I can't get over this someone spray painted or painted in gold paint on the side of this machine shed Mathis sucks shit Oh my god i mean when i get into it yes the crimes are horrible but that part i can't it's get like over a 12 year old and they missed shit. <laughs> and also they spelled mathis wrong so it's m-a-t-h-i-s is the is the correct spelling and they spelled it m-a-t-h-u-s they never really explain how it got there but for some reason yeah mathis, someone thought mathis sucked shit. someone clearly thought that mathis Spends his extracurricular time. <laughs> Sucking shit. Feces. Yeah. <laughs> Kirkus grabs his riot shotgun and he, and he notices that Vern Mathis, John's father, was also carrying a rifle or shotgun. So that sounds pretty typical to me of small town, you know, 1981, don't have a lot of law enforcement. It's not like you see in the TV shows, like, well, call back up. And like five minutes later, backup shows up and it's like the SWAT team and everything. This guy's phone number was the same yeah. as the police number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there isn't backup. <laughs> so your options are pretty limited if something terrible happens. The two men approached the building and when Kirkus opened the walk-in door, he saw John Mathis kneeling at the foot of a bed. Oh, shit. So he approaches the bed and he sees blood on the corner of a sheet that was covering what's clearly a body. He then sees two other beds adjacent to the first bed, both also containing bodies. Oh All three bodies were covered. So Kirkus pulls back the bed cover so he can check for a pulse and there is no pulse and dead from apparent gunshot wounds is LaDonna Mathis, the wife of John Mathis. And this part's kind of tough, but in two, their, two of their sons, Brian, who's four years old and Patrick, who's two years old. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I knew that hit you and hard. gunshot wounds? Gunshot yeah. wounds, yeah. Jesus. They have a third son who's an infant, but he was not there that night. He was staying oh, with LaDonna's God. parents. So LaDonna had been shot once in the head and once in the neck. Patrick, twice in the head. And Brian, once in the head. Um, the bodies were still warm to the touch. And Kirkus saw that the wounds appeared to be caused by small caliber slugs. And it was like point blank. So you can imagine the, the damage. damage. So Kirkus helps Mathis up from the foot of LaDonna's bed and automatically Mathis complains that his left arm hurts and Kirkus notices that it's wrapped in a, in a pink long sleeve shirt and there's also a hole in the shirt okay. and powder burns around the hole. Like he'd been shot in his arm? 
Yes. So he pulls back the sleeve and he sees an entrance wound on the inside of Mathis's left forearm. Okay. So his forearm, like the inside of your forearm, I guess if you were like holding up your arms to defend yourself. Sure. That makes sense. Like, yeah. But if there's a powder burn, isn't it fairly close? Yeah. I, think, I would I think, think so. Um, he checked the outer part of Mathis's arm and he saw a small bulge, which appeared to be an exit wound. So he took a package of bandages from his trauma kit and he dressed the wound and began treating Mathis for shock. I don't know how you can treat. You're not an ambulance. You're not an EMT. It's just your sheriff's patrol car. Which is likely his personal vehicle, too. Right. How do you treat someone for shock? A little massage action. A little massage action. Some meditation. Just a soothing voice. Yeah. Maybe know. they've got like a recording of rain or. Enya. Yeah. Some Enya. <laughs> he, of course, asks Mathis, like, what the hell happened? Right. Yeah. And Mathis just keeps saying, like, I'll get that son of a bitch. And, but he's not like crying. He's just saying like, I'll get that son of a bitch. And Kirkus asked for a description of who Mathis is talking about. And Mathis said it was a person wearing dark colored clothing and a deal over his face. But they called it a deal? Yeah, but he meant just like, like you'd oh. say thingamajig. Oh, like, got it. Yeah, got yeah. It, got it. Mathis said that none of this would have happened if he had locked the door. I mean, but it's your machine shed and you're way out in the middle of nowhere. And it's South Dakota, 1981. Right. You're not going to lock the door. No. I mean, I would. I mean, but (laughs) but. I absolutely would. But yeah. Especially if somebody said I suck shit. Yes. (laughs) Someone said. (laughs) I'd be like, lock those doors. Anyway, I'm really hung up on the wrong part of this, but I am obsessed with finding out not who did it, but like who, who spray painted who that. Who spray painted that? We that need is to know. Rude. The plot thickens. <laughs> Davidson County Sheriff, so this is a sheriff now, Lyle Swenson, arrived at the scene at 4:25 a.m. So it's all pretty quick. Yeah. So within a half an hour, two central questions quickly presented themselves to Swenson and Kirkus. Who was the mysterious hooded masked man described by John Mathis? And what possible motive would explain the killing of a 30 year old farm wife and their two sons? And three. Why does Mathis suck shit? shit? I don't understand. So yeah, so of course, right away, they're going to be like, oh, he did this. Right. Like, he's their number one. We're all thinking it. But he didn't even try and give a very good story. So as the night slash day wore on, like eventually 15 men performed what they called a dragnet of the buildings and the land surrounding them, which was pretty extensive. Yeah, I mean, it's a farm. Yeah. So there's like, they said nine buildings. Oh my God. Yeah. And I mean, it's a big operation. Yeah. So where do you even start? Exactly. So they search all the buildings and the land. I mean, as much as they can, surrounding them, seeking the the murder weapon, which was a 22 caliber rifle. And no gun was found, nor was anyone able to find evidence pointing to any suspect, even after a full day of intense investigation. So any other suspect, like they can't find a murder weapon. They found nothing. They didn't, they couldn't find shells. They didn't footprints, like nothing. Blood, if 
he defended himself vigorously, you know, no, like the other person didn't bleed. And was he still kind of in shock? So he wasn't able to share? I imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. So meanwhile, the deputy sheriff and this DCI agent, Ken Giedling, they're questioning Mathis while he was recovering at the Methodist Hospital in Mitchell. And at that time, they advised him of his Miranda rights and he, and he waived them. For oh, the so he, okay. So he was a suspect then. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't find anything sure. else. And now this is just like going on eight hours or whatever, and they can't find the murder weapon or anything. And they're like, like you're the only one alive right. from this whole thing. So according to 30 year old Mathis, sometime after two in the morning, his son, Patrick awakened and said he had to go to the bathroom. Patrick was the two year old. And Mathis said he took his son to urinate in a pail inside the shed, got him a drink of water and tucked him back into bed. Mathis said he then went outdoors into some trees to relieve himself. Evidently he goes outside to pee, but he makes to sun pee in a pail. Which I understand. Yeah. I mean, you as a mother. Like, I would do I would do yeah, something. It takes a lot to get them outside. And like, like to get them back to bed. Like, do you want to do something as quick as humanly possible? Oh, that's true. So they don't like wake up. That's true. Okay, so that's, yeah. So that's probably why. Anyway, so he's out there in the trees relieving himself. And he heard his dog barking in a nearby building. He's like, why is my dog in there? So he let the dog out and walked to a farrowing barn to check on a sow, which is a female I was waiting for that. I'm like, I know that's some sort of animal. That had given birth to baby pigs earlier that day. So when Mathis left the barn after checking on the pigs, he heard the dog barking again. So he went to tie him up. And at that time, he thought he heard an engine running, but could not identify the location. So that makes sense to me that you would notice that because you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're very familiar with all the nighttime sounds. Sure. Especially if you're a farmer and you've got animals giving birth in the middle of the night. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like how I know Bigfoot is real because I know what the woods sound like at night. And you know what they sound like with big feet. yeah okay you can say that you can say that so he pushed the dog into the doghouse and he walked toward the shed where his family was sleeping as mathis approached the corner of the machine shed a man was closing the walk-in door and started for him so one I understand that he might not have seen mathis suck shit if he's coming down the corner of the machine shed true corner true two Why would the man close the door? Good question. If you just murdered an entire family, why would you close the door? Uh, The man was carrying a rifle and Mathis remembered him saying, I'll get you. So uh, Mathis reached for the barrel of the rifle. Again, this is his story. He missed and the gun evidently went off and hit him on the inside of his left forearm. And Mathis said he swung at the intruder but he didn't know if he hit him. The man made a loud noise. He called it a loud noise like they teach you in basic training when attacking a dummy with a rifle and a bayonet. Okay. I don't know what that noise is because I've never been in the National Guard or basic <laughs> training, huh. but that's how Mathis describes it. So already it's a little questionable. Like his story's a little questionable. He passed out right after he got shot. So maybe he just doesn't remember exactly how it all happened. But yeah, it's weird. Uh, When asked to repeat the story, Mathis added some details about when he called Kirkus and his father, Vern. Mathis said he had no idea who the killer was and denied that he killed his own family. Kirkus told Mathis there was no evidence to support his story about a hooded masked man. But Mathis calmly answered that he had not shot his family. After the interview ended, Mathis was asked if he could think of any other details. Uh, After a moment, he said the mask on the killer 
had a lighter colored trim around the holes for the eyes and the mouth, but he could not recall what color it was. Although Mathis agreed to submit to hypnosis as one way to recall more details of the incident. And he also said he'd be willing to take a polygraph test. Neither occurred. Okay. Which really surprises me. That is interesting. Because in all of our research, like a polygraph is like the first thing they especially do. Especially at that time. Especially like in, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Like, at the very least, truth theorem. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> Dude, maybe they didn't have one. I don't know. I mean, it was a really small. Right. So uh, maybe that was it. The coroner's report described a considerable amount of blood on the bedding of each victim from the head wound, but there was no evidence of a struggle in the immediate area. So that points to the fact that they were asleep. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know. All three victims were found in their nightclothes and no bruises were found that could have indicated any kind of a struggle. So they didn't know. I, mean, I guess that's to put it quite bluntly, they didn't know what hit them, which is for the best. Yeah, but. honestly, it is. But Jesus. I know. Kind of a monster. Like sees a sleeping baby. It just makes you think like, you would have to be looking for that farm and you would have to know that they were sleeping in a machine shed. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. It's shady. Uh, over the next few days, law enforcement searched the land and all nine buildings looking for the murder weapon. Yeah. Two septic tanks containing hog waste were searched with no findings. Ugh, what um, a dirty job. Ugh. Yeah. The agents also looked closely at the partially constructed house that was being built to replace the Mathis home, which had been destroyed in a fire caused by a lightning strike on July 22nd. Oh, shoot. An earlier fire on July 9th, 13 days earlier, had damaged the home. Following the September 8th killings, a $50,000 insurance claim paid to the Mathis family for the fires was being reevaluated, and the second fire was considered an open case. Ooh. Yeah. So 50000 by all- $50,000 isn't going to, like, I guess, what kind of house will that rebuild? Yeah. You know, if you're just doing it for insurance- You're not going to have any profit. Right. Yeah. On Friday, September 11th, about 350 people, including John Mathis, attended the funeral for LaDonna and her two children. Mathis had been released from the hospital under doctor's orders to return for further treatment of his arm wound. So it was pretty significant. And, you know, it was a close contact shot through his forearm. And even though law enforcement now considered him a person of interest, no charges had been filed against him at that time. Because they can't find a murder weapon. No, or anything. He didn't even call the insurance company. Finally, on Friday, October 30th, John Mathis was indicted on three counts of first degree murder and arrested uh, at a local restaurant. And he was held on a $200,000 cash bond. uh, And the trial was set for April. So now we're going to go into like who John Mathis was. So John Wayne Mathis was a hardworking farmer. And he had a close relationship with his father, Vern, who, like, by all accounts, was fairly dominating. Okay. There wasn't a lot of an, of affection in the Mathis home. But still. Just like a very hardworking, working hard-working. relationship. Yeah. Working it was a farm family. And he, and he probably had a close relationship because he followed in his father's footsteps. Sure. Many who knew him said he worked all the time and that it wasn't unusual for him to be in the field at two or three in the morning. Born in 1951, Mathis was the middle child of Vern and Pearl Mathis. Vern Jr. was his older brother and Norma Jean, his younger sister. As a youth, Mathis attended country school, huh. which you'd think being from where I'm from, I would have heard of it. Yeah. But, or gone to it. Yeah. Or like, well, maybe I did it. Yeah. And we just didn't call it, it that. Yeah, maybe, like, it's just called, maybe it was just like. Uh, and then he went on to do four years of high school in Mount Vernon. Mathis met his wife, LaDonna Gerlach, at a dance in Mitchell, where the Corn Palace is. Oh, I wonder if it was there. I wonder if the dance was at the Corn Palace. (laughs) Can you imagine? 
all things corn. All like things little corn. Mini corns on the cob. You want some popcorn? You want? And some then you know, like corn dogs. And if they, corn if bread. you know, if a guy was describing his date, she could he could say she's a husky girl. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's, I'm all ears. It's because I've been referred to I'm as all a husky ears. girl. Oh, I'm all oh, ears. <laughs> I wonder if anyone popped the question. Okay. Okay. We're done. Um, or are we? Or are we? Yeah. Or are we? Um, I wonder if anyone got stalked. <laughs> oh, my God. That's we, good. Oh, Oh, the corn puns. The oh, corn puns. I love it. Okay. Fun. And they married on May 4th, 1973. She wasn't very old. No. I mean, and he was 30 when this happened. So, jeez. Um, yeah. For fun and two on wine, he fished, he bowled, and he danced. Wow. Yeah. Uh, John had few, if any, close friends. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, how can you have close friends if you're, like, working all the time? Yeah, I guess. And they all lived really far apart. True. Like, it's not like, true. you know, where I can just pop across the street and interrupt your work day. And right. Be like, true. <laughs> his wife was active in church affairs, but John was always busy on the farm, often working late at night, like I already mentioned. Yeah. High school classmates said that John wasn't very involved in anything. He came to school and after school, he was expected to go home and work. He wasn't in sports or band, but he wasn't exactly a loner, but he didn't participate in anything extracurricular because he couldn't, right. you know, he had to, he had to work. He also wasn't one to go out and party. He doesn't sound like a party kind of a guy. Yeah, he sounds like, I, I'm like, I feel sad for him because like, it sounds like his childhood was kind of lame. Yeah. But well, I mean, it sounds like. No wonder he went in the National Guard, because it sounds like his childhood was fairly regimented, and his yeah. upbringing was pretty strict. Right. But I've known farm families like that my whole life, and like they that's how they keep the farm running. Like, everyone has to contribute. Everyone plays their part. But yeah, a lot of my friends, you know, when you went for a slumber party or to stay the night or whatever, like, you were expected to pitch in, too. Like I said before, the family was run by an iron fist. His father, Vern, was a total dictator. And his grandfather, Burns' father, Irving, he was a farmer also. And apparently he was really bad. Jeez. Like, yeah. No affection. That's how it was. So as far as physical appearance, like we'll post photos, but he was approximately 5'10", 155 pounds. So he wasn't a big guy. No. And hard work was just a way of life yeah. for him. So for LaDonna Gerlach Mathis, uh, she was described as... The quintessential farm wife, totally invested in the operation. Okay. Um, she helped care for the hogs. She loved her children and her husband, and she attended church regularly. She was 5'9". She had beautiful blue eyes, and she had dark brown hair. Everyone said she had a beautiful smile. She and her siblings also grew up on a farm. When she graduated from high school, LaDonna chose not to go to college, and instead she wanted to develop her people skills and learn about business. Hmm. So she worked at a bank. Good for her. Yeah. She was super good at sewing, and she sewed all her clothes, and she raised her own chickens. Ah. So she sounds like, like me. Yeah, she's like you. She sewed all her own clothes. And I mean, not that you sew your own no, clothes, but you can. I, can. I cannot. <laughs> LaDonna was the business head of the Mathis farm operation as John wasn't, uh, and they put this in quotes, book smart. Huh. I mean, he sucks shit, so yeah. he can't be that smart. <laughs> right. uh, LaDonna kept the books and John just, you know, 
He labored on the farm. Okay. Yeah. LaDonna had told family members on various occasions that items that the children might want or that she needed had to be put off many times because the farm operation came first. I think that's farming. I think that's farming. Yeah. A neighbor said that a woman in the Mathis house was expected to do more than the average woman was expected to do. Sounds like it. Yeah. So seven months after the killings on April 12th, the trial begins. It had been postponed twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, The grand jury had handed down indictments on first degree murder on October 30th. Okay. So it took from October to April 12th to get the trial started. I don't know why it was postponed. Yeah. Trials are postponed for various reasons, but that is actually a pretty, for a triple murder to have, like have Mm -hmm. it to turn around between indictments and, and trial is less than six months. That's fast. I mean, Especially when it doesn't seem like, like you said, it doesn't seem like it's very black and white. No. And I think the prosecution, I think that's the reason is like the prosecution was probably scrambling for proof. Yeah. Like they were interviewing anyone that they could. They had this silent witness hotline where people could call in anonymously. Oh shit. So they had all kinds of crazies, of course. Yeah. But they also had like people calling in saying, like, this sounds like something I might do, but not in light of this case. But, <laughs> no uh, more. I won't do it again. I won't, I won't do, it, do again. it again. I won't do it again. But, like, like some woman called and said, well, you know, they have a house that's not finished. And, you know, those studs, the drywall hasn't been put up yet. And they could just drop a rifle back there. So um, you might want to look there. Good luck. And then she hung up. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, thanks for the tip. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, and then just, just giving like general tips, just general like, tips. Hmm. Like I don't know if you thought of this, <laughs> yeah. but I guarantee unto you, Herman's out there. Yeah, Herman's looking for looking snakes. for snakes. <laughs> he's gonna find something. And he's gonna find that rifle. I guarantee unto you. Yeah. So he, he. So the rifle wasn't found. Never found. She never found the murder weapon. Herman's gonna find Herman's it. Herman's finding it. That's interesting because, like, if it was. John, it's it's like hard to where did he put the guns? Well, where he, he has nine buildings, but they they combed it, and he would have had to do it quickly. But I'm thinking about my friends who had big farm operations. We were getting into shit all the time, and they knew of places that nobody right. else knew. That's of. a good point. So. He could have very easily. Sure. He could have known that a board would come loose in a certain. Especially if it's, if they're all old buildings, which it seems yeah. like this has been in the family for a long time. So it, they are, they're old yeah. buildings. Yeah. Well, maybe, I guess maybe not. Did they, do you know, did they determine how long? Well. Before you said they were still warm. Yeah. So, so Kirkus said that the bodies were still warm. Right. But Mathis said that he was passed out from his bullet wound. At first he said like. 20 to 30 minutes and then that switched to like 30 to 45 minutes Hmm. how can the body still be warm yeah that's interesting you're talking about a man who's been shot in the arm and lost an entire family oh absolutely like is he gonna remember oh my god and even like if you asked me how long we've been recording right now yeah I would be like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. It could I'm be anywhere between 30 time. minutes and an hour and a half. I, I literally don't know. I mean you know how I look at time. Like you tell me to, to be here at 7.15 and I'll roll up at 7.45. Like, right, I'm and on I'm, time. And we're like, I'm early. Like, yeah. Time is so, it's so strange. Yeah. So to not know the difference between like a 15 minute window, that's, that's. Especially, like if you're passed out. Right. Like you're clearly not counting. No. And the when minutes. you're sleeping, time goes by quicker. It's relative. So it's just, 
That's stupid. So we're at the trial, April 12th. According to the prosecution, Mathis shot his wife and sons as they lay sleeping in their beds in the machine shed that was their temporary home while their new home was being completed. A suspicious basement fire had damaged the Mathis home on July 9th, and then the home was destroyed by fire after a lightning strike on July 22nd. So I'm just thinking back to my firefighting days. You can tell when lightning strikes a tree. Yeah. You can tell. You can tell. There's scorch marks. There's, you know. Like veiny. There's patterns. The origin of the fire. You can tell when a fire's been set and when it's been a lightning strike. So I imagine there was some inspection done. So the first fire, yeah. Like, that's suspicious. Happens in the basement. The second fire, it seems like it was pretty clear that it was lightning. Okay. It's just two fires. Yeah, that's very it's suspicious. Just, yeah. So they, of course, the prosecution is going to point to that. Yeah. And they're going to be like, oh, this weird shit. Like, that's in July. Both the fires were in July. And then his family is murdered in September. Also, I just thought of this. It could be, if you were to believe John Mathis' story, that someone else set the basement fire. Besides, you know, a family member. Absolutely. It could be that there were, there were, these were two prior attempts at killing the family. Yeah. So during the trial, the prosecution revealed that Mathis lied to law enforcement officers and further that the gunshot wound to his left arm was self-inflicted, which I guess if you're right-handed and it's a rifle, like you could prop it up and, and yeah, yeah, you could do that. You could hit, you could. How, but putting the barrel, like getting it, it would just, it would be hard. It'd be hard. It'd be hard. I mean, they say Kurt Cobain pulled the trigger with his toe. Yeah. So (laughs) I don't know. So they said that the gunshot wound was self-inflicted. And then the state would show that Mathis had a relationship with a neighbor girl. Oh, who was the family's babysitter. Gross. Why is that always a thing? I know. So if you're looking for motive, like this is what they present because they were like, what is the motive? Like they don't have a murder weapon. They don't have a motive. So it seems like there's life insurance. There's there's insurance on the house, but that's not, that's different. They have 50 K on the house. And then I think they said LaDonna's life insurance policy was 60 K. That's not. And there's no life insurance on the kids. That's like legitimate. That's a totally normal amount of life insurance. And who's going to help him run the farm? Right. I I don't know. Yeah, so he had a relationship with the family's babysitter. I'm still torn whether or not this was completely consensual because he was 30 and she was 17. Oh, no. So he had a sexual relationship, consensual or non-consensual, I don't know, with uh, with the babysitter. And it was a secret to Mathis's wife, LaDonna. So there was sexual contact between him and the young girl. I just, when I was 17, well, I had my first kiss when I was 17. Can't imagine messing around with someone's dad. Gross. I didn't do that until I was in my 20s. <laughs> but I'm bummed. That's another story for another time. So the young girl, whose name was Kim Tatum, um, she told her mother, Bonnie, who told Mathis to stay away from her daughter. So that, again, that's another indicator to me that it wasn't completely consensual. Right. Like she was like, I'm really uncomfortable. And yeah. She's telling her mom about it. Yeah. So they never had sex, but Mathis denied that they had any sexual contact contact, but it says later in the book, he rubbed her breasts and like her Gross bathing sex. suit area. Yeah. And like, you know, kissed her a few times and admitted that 
it was wrong. So I just want to say before this next part, disclaimer, it's pretty graphic. And especially in light of Texas and everything like that, uh, I don't want to be insensitive. So definitely fast forward probably about uh, two minutes just to be safe. Um, if if you don't want to hear this part, unfortunately, you have to because yeah. you're my partner. I'm stuck here. You're stuck here. But know that I don't relish in, in sharing this part. So prosecution alleged that at 2.30 a.m. on September 8th, Mathis used uh, a Marlin 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle to shoot his wife twice in the head. One of those wounds was fatal. Then Mathis shot his two-year-old son, Patrick, once in the back of the head with the bullet exiting through an eye. Then Mathis shot Brian, four years old, in the ear, and the wound was immediately fatal. Patrick, however, was not dead. Uh, He got up and turned around and was shot again from the front into the eye, and the bullet came out the back of his head. That shot killed him. Whoever did this had a serious mental break of some kind, whether it be a permanent part of their genetic makeup or a man who has been absolutely dominated his entire life. No excuse for this happening, but you have to be psychotic temporarily or permanently to do something like this. Yeah. The defense countered that Mathis was met with an intruder as he was leaving the machine shed uh, when he was returning from checking on the hogs. Mathis contended he was shot on the inside of the forearm when he was scuffling with the intruder. Uh, After lying unconscious for several minutes, he awoke and found his wife and sons killed in their beds. So several minutes would make sense because the bodies would still be warm. Absolutely. Um, Because remember, Kirkus got there, the deputy sheriff, like in 13 minutes. Yeah, right. And also, I thought of this, Mathis covered them with blankets. He admitted that he did that. Oh. And that might keep them. Um, The defense also noted, which this is a good point, Mathis had no gold spray paint on his hands, so he couldn't have painted the message. Which I know, from being on farms, there are sources of water all over the place. And like gloves. Yes, which is what they said. They were like, or he could have been wearing gloves. Because like, if he got rid of the gun, he could have gotten rid of gloves. He could. Yeah, exactly. So Mathis's defense team and its ex- expert witnesses portrayed Mathis as slow intellectually and said that he couldn't be capable of planning the murders. A licensed psychologist showed that Mathis had a total IQ of approximately 81. It's not real bright. No. Um, however, he, he wasn't dumb except for book learning. He, he knew about welding more than the average man. And after he was married, he put a turbocharger on a tractor. He took an old cow barn and remodeled it into a farrowing barn. Like he could, he was good with his hands. Yeah. So he can't be that dumb. Right. But, but I mean, as far as intellectual testing goes, he was 81. A 22 caliber rifle shell was found in Mathis's pocket after his clothes were removed at the hospital the morning of the shooting. Hmm. Mathis told authorities that Patrick, which is the two-year-old, found a live 22 shell in the yard and was seen playing with it the night before the shooting. Mathis told authorities he questioned his son about the shell, took it from the boy, and put it in his pocket. But, get this, conveniently, when jurors were returning from lunch one day during the trial, they found a 22 caliber shell just on the sidewalk. And so the prosecution was saying like that was planted by the defense to indicate that it's just really easy to find shotgun shells while you're just out walking. (laughs) Yeah. But how? Yeah. It's really weird. And in fact, like in the book, it says that uh, there were two bullets on either side of the sidewalk, but the jury just saw the one and later they found another. 
So it's like, no matter where they looked, they were going to make sure that they saw that rifle show. Yeah. Like, hey, he's good. Like, no one's ever going to think it's us. It could have just been someone who wanted Mathis to get out of this. Yeah. And was like, hey, I'll, I mean, it could have been the babysitter. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> right. So the sheriff's deputy, Kirkus, was the strongest witness, obviously, because he was first on the scene yeah. with Fern Mathis. M- much of his testimony focused on the absence of blood in the area where Mathis said he struggled with a masked assailant. So that, to me, was really weird too because it's like he shot you and you struggled with him there's no blood on the ground right where he said it happened not even his own blood but Kirkus testified there were no footprints car tracks or blood anywhere in that area uh Kirkus also said the only blood found was inside the machine shed where the bodies were discovered so like you're shot in the forearm you're gonna track blood yeah but it was also back in the days when they said they had 15 guys combing the whole property. Or they did they just kick, the scene, right? Yeah. Did they kick over the top of stuff? Who knows? Kirkus contradicted another key part of Mathis's version of the morning's events. Mathis said when he regained consciousness, he crawled to the machine shed door and looked across the room and he could see blood. And that's when he called Kirkus. But Kirkus testified there was no way someone entering the machine shop could have seen the bed or the condition of the victims in them. The beds were at the far end of the building. When you entered the machine shed, you could maybe see the outline of John Mathis's bed, but any further you couldn't see. Oh, so he claimed that he crawled to the door and looked inside. Yeah. And if you're crawling, you're not standing. So no. how even more so? How can you? Right. So... Kirkus did acknowledge to the defense that no fingerprints were taken anywhere on the farm, but he'd said that so many people had come and gone at the scene that taking prints seemed futile. <sighs> Mathis was tested for gunshot residue at the hospital and it was negative. However, Kirkus said that Mathis, Mathis could have been wearing gloves, just like he right, said. Right. Like he could have done the painting and he could have done the shooting and he could have gotten, it could all happen. Right. But a stranger could also happen. Absolutely. They did question other suspects, but none of them were viable. One person of interest was Greg Borman, who had sold fuel not only to John Mathis, but also to other family members. All five family members had stopped doing business with Borman, but the elder Mathis, Vern Mathis, who admitted to discussing Borman with the sheriff, testified that he, that, that he could recall no argument or confrontation with Borman as a result of the business termination. That's a pretty significant chunk of your yeah. business. They quickly ruled him out. Like okay. He had an alibi. Um, a pathologist testifying for the prosecution detailed the injuries on both boys and LaDonna, as well as showing graphic photos of all three bodies. And when <laughs> And they were being shown, Mathis looked away from the screen and held his arm over his face. So either he couldn't face what he had done or he couldn't face what had been done. So law enforcement still believed that uh, there was no masked man and John Mathis had cold-bloodedly killed his wife and his two sons. The weapon eluded a thorough and painstaking search that took weeks to complete. Yeah. Like I mentioned to you before, like the challenge was a sheer size. Yeah. Like, It's just massive area to cover. So one theory of where the murder weapon could possibly be, there was a pit that functioned as a large collection tank directly below the hog barn. It was a common practice for confinement hog raising, which means confined, I mean, essentially what it says, like your hogs in a pen, was to have the animals on slatted floors. So the waste, so basically their shit would flow directly below to a pit or a lagoon. 
Ugh. Yeah, it's like an outhouse for pigs. Oh, God. Yeah. When the pit was filled, it was pumped out, and the waste material was sometimes spread as fertilizer on the property owner's farmland. So just everything smells like shit. The sheriff and others thought perhaps the murder weapon had been thrown into this pit. Sure. They got a pump to pump it down, and using oxygen tanks, uh, they even had, they said, breathing apparatus, which I imagine like scuba gear for some reason, oh. and hats provided by the fire department. Two members of law enforcement were sent into the pit both were tied to a rope to rescue them if they got in trouble like can you imagine dying that way (laughs) a drowning pig shit a suck shit dressed in waders they crisscrossed the lagoon like they had a pattern and they were up to their armpits in sewage and the search produced nothing as did trying to find a motive like what would cause a man to kill his own wife and child the only thing that they could come up with was a relationship with the babysitter that was the only motive and according to kim tatum who was a cheerleader and an honor student um she confirmed that mathis had tried to kiss her when they were alone she thought the first time mathis kissed her would have been around uh 1979 so he's about 28 this was two years before the murders She'd been babysitting, and when he paid her, he gave her a quick kiss. He kissed her again in the spring of 1981 when they were working in the hog barn. Tatum told the deputies that Mathis had tried to put his hands on her breasts. She told him that it was wrong, and he said that he knew it was wrong and apologized. Uh, She didn't recall Mathis telling her he loved her, but he did say he liked her a great deal. It doesn't even seem like a real, like, relationship. It's not. Um, On one occasion, Mathis told her that he wished he hadn't gotten married, and he wished he had met her first. In a follow-up interview, Tatum admitted to having feelings for Mathis and agreed that Mathis had similar feelings for her. She admitted that Mathis had kissed her, rubbed her bathing suit area, those things. Tatum denied ever going to bed with Mathis or ever having sex with him. Tatum said that Mathis felt his wife, LaDonna, was the one who wanted to get married when they did. So it sounds like a guy who's like, doesn't have anything exciting in his life. Yeah, right. He works all the time. And then he just decides, like, he gets his hair up his ass and is like, oh, I'm just going to kiss the babysitter. Right. And he has this, like, tiny infatuation, maybe, but nothing serious. Yeah, it's, it's still wrong. Yeah, right. It's still gross and wrong. But is that, I mean, I just is don't that, see that as a yeah, motive. It's not technically like i don't see it as like this heated affair i agree you know like we're gonna be together forever and if only my wife weren't in the picture yeah Yeah. exactly so when the prosecution called tatum on april 29th she said that when she went to the hospital to visit mathis after he was wounded in the shooting incident he winked at her yikes she hasn't lied before so why would she lie why would you lie about that on the stand tatum was soft-spoken but composed and she occasionally looked at mathis tatum also told officers she didn't believe john mathis was the kind of man who would kill his wife and family but yeah they never said i love you they never made any promises mathis you know yeah he was a dick for saying like well you know i wish i'd met you before i got married or but it sounds to me like it was a early life crisis or whatever. I agree. Yeah. Not something that he's going to kill his entire family over. I agree. So then Mathis took the stand. So he took the stand in his own defense and they describe him as being very calm and methodical. He spent the first hour and a half answering questions about his background and his family and his farming operation. But in the last two hours, when his defense team asked him about the early morning events of September 8th, his pauses were long. His eyes were puffy. They teared up. His voice quavered. He basically, like, he was appearing to be distraught. Asked directly three separate times if he, if he was guilty, he said no. And yeah. he just kept telling the same story over and over that it was a masked intruder 
you know, that he struggled before and was shot in the arm before he blacked out. And when he woke up, he was woozy and his head, teeth and arm hurt as he crawled to the machine shed. So that's when he saw, you know, he says he saw the bodies of his family. Okay. So he keeps telling the same story and over, over and over. Ultimately, what it came down to is that the jury just simply could not believe that a father would kill his entire family. And ultimately he was acquitted. There was just no evidence. Yeah. They, there was no real motive, no murder weapon. There. Yeah. I mean, honestly, based on what you're telling me, I think that was the right decision. I mean, according to our justice system, yeah. it's reasonable doubt. Yeah. And if you have reasonable doubt, you have to acquit. Yeah. John Mathis is, uh, remains the only suspect in the murders huh. of LaDonna and their two sons. They never arrested anybody for the crime. They didn't, to my knowledge, investigate it any further because they had no leads to go on. And uh, his family actually offered a reward for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator. But that reward went unclaimed. Um, and those involved with the prosecution still believe that, it, that John Mathis is guilty in spite of the jury's verdict. John Mathis is still alive. Yeah. Um, you know, he's in his 70s now. He's retired and living in Mitchell, the home of the Corn Palace. Wow. Yeah. Um, he's been quoted as saying, uh, he's been quoted as saying if law enforcement had done their job, there wouldn't even have been a trial. Mm. It's just unfortunate that either due to the inefficiencies of the investigation or due to, you know, Mathis's incomprehensible cunning nature, there's never, there's really no justice for anyone. Yeah. Like, was it a rush to judgment and therefore they were like blinded to other possibilities? Um, You know, did they immediately think it's this guy? We don't need to take time. But on the other hand, who else could it have been? Right. And whoever they are, they got away with it and they're spray painting other people's sheds. Right. So if you get spray paint (laughs) on your garage door and it says that you suck shit. (laughs) Beware. Beware. And yeah. how much investigating did they do after they set their sights on him? You know, did they look into... He said he heard a car engine running yeah. off to the west. Did they investigate that? Did they go see if there were tire tracks there? Yeah. I feel like this guy, Kirkus, the deputy sheriff, and the sheriff, I feel like they did the best they could. Yeah. But they just didn't have the experience. And unfortunately... Well, I mean, not many places do. You know? I mean, you hear about that now. Yeah. Yeah, so so what? So he lives in Mitchell. Anything else about him? Like what's yeah? After to? he was acquitted, he was allowed to take custody of his infant son Dwayne, who who Dwayne to this day he was an infant in 1981, so not that much older than myself. Uh, he attests over and over to his dad's innocence. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, take that. You know, right? Take that for what you will. What about and maybe you didn't? Maybe you talked about this, or maybe you don't know. But what about like her family or his family? Like, so it says. Um, Dwayne had been in the care, the, the infant son had been in the care of LaDonna's parents okay. throughout the trial. Um, and that uh, it does talk about, the book goes into more detail about her family, but it really struck me this part where uh, I believe it was LaDonna Gerlach's brother was saying um, that his father had to hand over LaDonna's infant son to Mathis and they still believe that Mathis did this. So the Gerlach family didn't talk to John Mathis anymore. After the trial, her family still thinks he did it. Okay. And, uh, and his baby son doesn't, you know, and law enforcement, law enforcement thinks he did it. Obviously, 
God. There's enough in the community that thinks he didn't do I it. I can't believe he stayed in the area. That's really surprising. Yeah. Like, yeah. I guess if, if you're a farmer and like, I guess you just have to kind of stick with your land, but it seems surprising that. I don't think, I mean, it didn't say in the book, but I don't think people were like really believing that he did it. Okay. You know, like the jury didn't believe that right. he did it. And I'm sure the community was like, no, we know him. Like yeah. he's, I mean, even the girl that he sexually preyed upon was saying like, oh, he couldn't have done this. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it was way out of character for him to do something like this. And like, I think it's easier for people to believe that he didn't do it because he's one of them. And they're like, oh no, this has to be like, you know, outsider. the concept of a monster yep. or like an outsider, like sure. this, we don't behave like this. This isn't, they don't want to think that their own husbands or their uncles or fathers could just snap one day and murder them. Yeah, so it's absolutely. easier to think like, oh, this was a one-off. This was a stranger. It was just a horrible tragedy. I don't know. Yeah. But God, that's wild. So yeah. sort of unsolved, but sort of unsolved. Yeah. It's just all around very sad. Yeah. Very, very sad. No, Ugh. no justice. No, 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 we're not really for anyone. Cause for like, not, not for anyone. Ugh. This little boy had to, you know, this baby had to grow up without his siblings and his mother and, you know, knowing what his father went through and what he potentially and what he did, potentially did, you know? Oh God. It's, it's, yeah, it's really shocking. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. We've yeah. got another state to check off our list yeah. of states. And next week I'm going to be doing Michigan. <gasps> Michigan's in the rear view now. Yeah. Once again, revisiting that song. Yeah. <laughs> Milk carton kids. You should check them out. Yeah. And hopefully you'll have your voice back. Right I know. Then. I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Thank you guys for listening. Please remember to like us, subscribe, check us out wherever you listen podcast. Tell all of your friends. I mean, like just spark up conversations. Go to Menards. People. Yeah. Talk to a guy about some mulch and then insert, <laughs> by the way, I have a podcast. Yeah. I mean, like, just do it. Tell, tell I everyone. announced it on, uh, I found a way to work it into a work call the other day. I, I like told random yeah. people I met when I was on vacation. Did you really? Heck yeah, I did. And they were like, cool. Can you mention us on your podcast? And I'm like, I will. And so here I am, cruise ship friends that I met that one night in the front of the cruise ship. <laughs> Nick and... I'm sorry, I don't remember your other name, but here I am. Mention you. You know, there's an Shut entire out. there's an entire investigation discovery show dedicated to cruise ships, like yeah. crimes that happen on cruise ships. Yeah, well, I'll have to go through some of those. But, yeah, but yeah, I I mentioned it. Now everybody. that you came out on the other end, okay, <laughs> not no worse for wear. <laughs> but tell everyone that you have ever met. Make sure to find us on Instagram at Premeditated Podcast. Send us a motherfucking email. Oh my God. The <laughs> podcast at gmail.com. I will keep reminding you until I get that first email. Someone's going to send you a dick pic. No, it's going to be something really inappropriate. <laughs> you know what? Whatever it is, I'm going to appreciate it. Really as am. long as it's not from an inmate. <laughs> that's, that's, Even if it is. Even I, if, oh my God. I don't care. Whoa, we've really dropped the bar. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys for listening as always. You can always find love at Menards, remember. that's. I think that'll be our new tagline. Yeah. Um, as always, instead of tell your folks you, we says hi, it'll be Fun. Tell, tell your folks to go to Menards and find love. Yeah. Or, or something a little less clunky than that. 
Kate's really good at these. Fun. I love that Menards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for now, tell, tell your, your folks, folks we says hi. hi.